Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, open our hearts to your word. Open us to you. Shape us into your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. By now, if you've been listening for the past eight weeks, uh, nine if you include today, you should know what John's first letter is about, right? Okay, it's one word, right? Okay, I think you do just as well as the 745 and the nine in getting that right, A+. Plus. And who are you supposed to love? Everyone. Not everyone. Actually, it's a little more specific. Okay, say it again. God and? Not your neighbor. Yes, your neighbor. I mean, of course, we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves, but this is the new commandment, okay? Our brothers and sisters, those of us within the community of faith especially, we love them differently. Jesus said, it's the new commandment, remember? Love one another, Jesus said to his disciples, as I have loved you. It's a different scale of love, right? Costly, sacrificial love. And it's related, John says, to loving God. You can't separate them. And we're meant to be a family. We've also seen that too, right? It's plural. It's not just you and you and you, but it's y'all or uh, as I've told you before, in Pittsburgh we say yins. So it's yins. We're meant to be shaped by God into this community of faith who love God, who know they're loved by God, and so therefore they love one another with the same kind of costly sacrificial love that Jesus showed us. And Jesus showed us not just in the cross when he died for us, but if you look at his life, and you look carefully, you'll see all along the way he took steps. He did things that were, uh, would get him in trouble, let's put it that way. And he just often just avoided trouble, being stoned or whatever, just slipped out until it was time. So costly, sacrificial acts of love for people that we might think, or at least people of his day thought, didn't really deserve it. But he loved with that kind of love. And he's calling us into a family that loves like that. And today's, in today's passage, you heard the same thing. Oh no, not again. The same thing, that interconnectedness and inseparability of loving God and loving our brothers and sisters in Christ who are also loved by God. But then uh, there's an addition in this passage, there's a little twist on the theme. John says, how do we know we are loving God's children? That is our brothers and sisters. How do we know? When we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God's children is connected to obeying God's commandments. Uh, it is something John said before. You might remember this. In his gospel, he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And then earlier in this letter, he says a couple of things about commandments. Uh, you might not have noticed it, but in chapter 2, 
he says that the knowledge of God is connected to keeping his commandments. And then in chapter 3, he talks about we ask and we receive because we keep his commandments. And in keeping his commandments, we abide in him and he abides in us. So this keeping commandment thing is somehow connected to this love thing. And what's the essential commandment? I've already, uh, key here, hint here, I've already told you, but what's the essential commandment from John that we're supposed to obey? Loving our brothers and sisters with the same costly love with which he loved us. And then John goes on and says something even more peculiar, at least to my way of thinking. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And Eugene Peterson translates these verses this way. The reality test on whether or not we love God's children is this. Do we love God? Do we keep his commands? The proof that we love God comes when we keep his commandments and they are not at all burdensome. So let me ask you a question. How you doing? How you, ooh, I hear a little bit of guilty laughter. Uh, that would be me, right? How are you doing on this? Better some days than others, right? How are you doing at loving God and keeping his commandments? But, but, but wait, I, the next phrase really captured my attention. Did you hear it at the end of that last one? His commandments are not burdensome. We tend to think commandments are burdensome, right? That's what a commandment is. It's something we have to do, whether we like it or not. Uh, we don't like being told what to do, or maybe it's just me, stubborn old me. You think, oh, maybe not, okay. <laughs> uh, okay, we don't like being, told, to, being what told, told what to do, but John says obeying God's commandments is simply how we act when we know we're loved by God. And when we belong to a culture, a family of people who love one another the way Jesus loved us, right? The outgrowth of being loved like that by God and by one another is we obey. Why not? It's what we do. We become a culture of God-loved people who love one another in concrete, sacrificial ways, just like he did, and often unseen ways. And his commandments are not burdensome. It's what we do. It's what the family does. It's how we are. And more and more, as we seek God, as we seek to love him and obey, it's what we want to do, right? Because God's commandments aren't do this or else, the way some of our dads might have said it, right? Uh, God's commandments are do this. Do this. So you live. Do this. Because that's what's going to allow you to flourish. Do it. It's what's best for you. Even if it tastes bitter in the beginning. Right? And John goes on. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes, that is, trusts, 
that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, what does he mean there by overcoming the world? What do you think? Don't you think it means to live in such a way, to live out our faith, even when the world screams at us to do other things? Even if, let me, let me say it another way, believing and trusting in Jesus as the Son of God and being born into his family enables us together to be a community who loves who loves the way Jesus loves automatically, even though the world around us doesn't love us that way and tells us we shouldn't either, even though the world around us says lots of different things, right? If that guy gets you, you better get him. You better rush for that before someone else does, right? The world is saying, get ahead, do this. Uh, If somebody is mad at you, turn your back, give up on it right? But that's the opposite from what Jesus is calling us to do and be. If we're loved by him, at least especially, or not at least, but especially in the household of faith, if he sins against us, we're meant to go to him and like work it out, figure it out. Or if we're sinned against, go and figure it out. Ask God's help. Forgive. How many times did Jesus say? 70 times 7, which meant even more, right? That's what living in God's family looks like, and we just do it. It's what we're called to, even if the world says, you schmuck, why are you doing that? What a waste. No, no, what's going to allow you to flourish as God's children, is when you love one another with costly, sacrificial love. I've been thinking a lot about this. Two weeks ago, as some of you know, I attended my father's long, postponed memorial service. He died in uh, May of 2020. And the internment of both my parents, my mother had died six months before that, uh, at the church I grew up in. Now, as some of you know, I'm from a big family, oldest of eight, and um, about 50 family members gathered for this occasion. And that's, that's not including all the greats who couldn't come because their schools wouldn't let them because of COVID. So anyway, it was a crowd, uh, an uproarious crowd, <laughs> maggard crowds are. So we had the usual uproarious maggard family dinners on Friday and Saturday night, you know, with noise gets louder and louder. I'm actually not the noisiest one in my family. (laughs) And then after the service, which on Saturday morning, we had a lovely sort of lunch reception where we told stories about my dad. And many of them, as you might imagine, were mixed with a kind of wry humor, like not digs, loving digs, you know, like, oh yeah. He did that, he did that, right? He, He challenged me that way, my dad was, Pretty competitive, we'll say that. Anyway, we told these stories, but here's what caught, that is sort of a bunny trail, sorry. Um, Here's what caught me by surprise. I had a bunch of cousins there, and all three of my dad's siblings divorced when um, their kids were young. You know, a trauma, trauma time, a traumatic time for them. 
And uh, my, my dad was the only one who stayed married his whole life. So, you know, they were married in their 20s. They died in their 90s. You do the math. Um, so my cousins, one by one, different ones of them told me, representing each of those three families, how dad had reached out to them in very concrete ways, giving a loan, of course, had to be paid back with interest, uh, to one of my cousins who was caught in a scrape and his parents were otherwise occupied. Um, one cousin, my dad said, come live with us. And as everything was exploding, and um, one cousin said, your dad always called me on my dad's birthday. His dad had died. And uh, this is the first year I didn't get the phone call. But here's what they also said. We loved coming to your house. We loved being around you. We loved being with you. You were just so stable and hospitable, and it was so helpful for us when we were in such shaky times. We were? <laughs> you could have fooled me. I was stunned. I mean, I, this tells you a lot about me probably too, I, I was just only too aware of my family's foibles, and I can list them for you one by one, right? But that's not what my cousins experienced. They experienced welcome and stability, something they could, someone, some people they could count on for love and security. And like, I didn't think about being stable or hospitable for them. And frankly, I can promise you my siblings didn't either, just saying. Uh, we, we just did it, whatever we did. We don't probably even know what we did to help them to feel this way. It was automatic, it's just who we were as a family, right? Stable <laughs> and hospitable. <laughs> and um, I, it was as much a part of our family as telling stories or getting louder and louder at the dinner table, trying to get a word in edgewise or trying to top one another. You know, it, welcoming them into this kind of stable household was just who we were. Now, my culture, my family was a culture with its own ways. There were plenty of rules, like clean counter was my mom's top. Uh, and I still remember my brother in grade school bringing in the garbage, like the garbage cans, bringing them around back from the front. And my mom's friend who watched this said, well, that's extraordinary. My mom kind of looked at her. What's extraordinary about that? You know, that his, she, her friend said, well, no, isn't that nice he does that for you? And she said, well, I do a lot of nice things for him. <laughs> but, and, but I love that story, right? Because it gives you the picture of, it's just what we do. Now, some of those things, the first time, might have been hard. Uh, the stability thing, maybe not so much, but though cleaning the counter up to my mom's, you know, uh, level of expertise was challenging. And some of the other things were too, but as you know, we're part of a culture. So we encourage one another and push one another. And so those cultural norms, those commandments, which they could be, became less and less burdensome. They weren't burdensome. They just were who we were. 
And you know, that's my prayer for Turo. Well, not that you'd be like my family. <laughs> but like, could it be that we could be more and more like a family, the family John is talking about, that loves God, that deeply knows how loved they are by God, so that it flows over and we do costly, sacrificial acts of love toward one another. And it's not like, oh gosh, I know I have to do that, right? It's, it's what we do. It's who we are. We don't think about it. It's just the thing we'll do. This week, as you know, if you read your team mail, we're beginning three weeks of talking about financial giving. And I hope in these two weeks, so three Sundays, but two weeks, you'll pray. You'll ask God what he wants you to do with your resources, how he wants you to give, how much he wants you to give to his work in the world, and more particularly to his work through Truro. Remember, for the last eight weeks, nine if you, nine if you include today, we've been talking about God's love, what it looks like becoming a culture together, reflecting the character and ways of Jesus. Well, I think a key way to reflect God's character and ways is by generosity. I mean, think about it. God, the creator of the universe, owed us nothing, right? But what did he give? He gave his very best. He gave his own son to love us and to serve us. Remember Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to die. But even before he died, to love us sacrificially, costly and sacrificially. Talk about generous. That's what God gave. Giving some of our money pales in comparison to that for those of us who love God, are loved by him, and want to be like him. One of the marks of God's people throughout the centuries has been a kind of eagerness to give generously to God in return for all that God's given to us, uh, both for their support of worship, but also to meet the needs of those you know, who are hurting. Think about it, a lot of churches and hospitals, well, churches obviously, but hospitals and schools, you know, the first ones came from the church. I love this story. I told it last year, but you won't mind if I give you a little reprise. In Exodus 35, where Moses is getting ready, they're getting ready to build the tabernacle. And so Moses asked the people to contribute to the giving of the, of the tabernacle. Gold and silver, wood and fabric, leather and oil, spices for the building. And the people gave. They gave. They gave so much that the builders, the designers had to say, Moses, tell them to stop. We have no place to store it all. It's too much. So Moses said, stop. You don't hear many preachers or pastors saying that these days. But anyway, Moses had to say, stop. Why? It was not burdensome for them to give. It was not burdensome for them to obey. I love the story of the early church in Acts 2. It's familiar to many of you, I'm sure. Here's what it says. All who believed 
were together and they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now in the context, it's clear this wasn't a common purse, so to speak. It didn't mean they just threw all the money into a hopper and then redistributed it. No, it was more like this open-handed generosity, like people didn't cling to their possessions. They held them loosely. So if someone had need, they sold a field, gave the money to the person in need. But there was no stewardship sermon, right? It just was what they did. It's just who they were as a church, living out, loving one another as I've loved you. They were loved and they knew it by a generous God, a generous savior, a savior who had given his life for them. And think about today's gospel, right? The poor widow, quietly giving all she had, right? She crept up to give that money. The money that was collected in large metal bins so that when you threw in the money, the, the coins made a lot of noise. So picture that. It wasn't just they were giving their piles of money, but not paper money. So you, there was a clamor when those rich people were given it all. Everybody's attention was brought. And so she sneaks in, sticks those little coins, hardly make a peep, right? But what did Jesus say? She gave all she had, and that's giving more. Do you think, let me ask you, do you think it was hard for her? We're not told, but I wonder, did she just know the love of God well enough to trust that he would provide for her? I mean, I think that's what God wants us to know so deeply. We can trust him. We can be generous. It's who we are because God's generous with us. and He loves us. Traditionally, the church has recognized the tithe, that is 10% of one's income, as the benchmark for giving to God. It's not a rule so much, although it was one of the rules about giving in the Old Testament. It's linked to the Old Testament practice where you were meant to give 10% of your produce, like in an agrarian culture. 10% and you give it first. You know, when you're not really sure it's all going to happen. And the, our denomination, the ACNA, suggests that we give, that parishioners give 10% of their income to their church. The church gives 10% to the diocese. The diocese gives 10% to the denomination, it's a guide. It's not so much a rule as a, a, a guide. It's not meant to be burdensome. I mean, it's a guidepost to help us to be generous as God has been generous with us. My husband, Wiss, and I have been tithing since we were married. And uh, now we're working on upping that percentage year by year. And while there are a few years early on there that it was pretty burdensome. God's always provided for us, and we've learned to trust him. So now, it's not burdensome. It's just what we do. That's why we're kind of pushing ourselves to do a little more. Like, it's not really costly and sacrificial anymore. I want to be one of those who, it's just what we do. 
to be generous like Jesus was generous to us. What do you think it would look like if Truro were to become the kind of family of unselfconscious natural generosity all over the place? Now, I'm not saying you aren't generous. I don't know who gives what. I don't know. But I wonder if God might want to do something new in us about generosity, that even though the world tells us we can't afford to give, right? You need this, and your kids definitely need that. And how about this? You don't have enough left. Even though the world tells us that, remember what John said, we've overcome the world as we trust in Jesus. What if we were that kind of people overcoming the world's messages when it came to our generosity as a congregation? I think that was John's vision for the church. Like he could see it. That's why we're getting tired of hearing the same old message, right? Because he sees how crucial it is, this loving, being loved by God, therefore loving God, and having that pour out in our costly sacrificial love for one another. Dear Truro family, and you have become so dear to me, that's my prayer for us. Um, and as we think about in these next two weeks, that we would grow in our love for one another. And so people who come into our midst go, wow, they know how to love. This must be what Jesus is like but also that we would grow in our generosity, not just each of us, but all of us together. So they'd be surprised by that too. Wow, this smells like the New Testament. This is kind of the way they were. This is what it means to be loved by God. May God do this. May he send his Holy Spirit on us so that we more deeply can know that God loves us that we more deeply and easily can love one another as he loved us. And we can deeply and more easily reflect God's generosity in our generosity. Will you pray with me? And that, O oh Lord, is what we pray. That you more and more will make us a people who reflect your love and your glory. Send your spirit on us so that we may be generous as you are generous, so that we, we may love as you love. In Christ's name, amen.